Well, church, everybody good? Yeah. All right. Well, I want to talk to you for a few moments about the subject of faith again. Now, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. So faith is not a Sunday activity. The Bible says you live by faith. So faith has to do with your marriage, with your kids, with your money, with your job, with your attitude. There is ever, literally every aspect of our life is supposed to be affected by your faith. The just shall live by faith. Everything that you do. I think it's interesting in Hebrews 11 where it talks about faith. It starts out and it says that Abel gave by faith. That Enoch walked with God by faith. You know, that, that's literally where we're supposed to all get with our faith is where we walk with God in every decision, every part of our life is connected to God. And it says that Abraham obeyed by faith and he left where he was, went where God was going to show him. But if you look at what you find there in Hebrews chapter 11 on the subject of faith, it's just that faith has to do with every aspect of our life. Now, yes, when there's problems, faith comes in, but it has to do with good days and bad days, Sundays and Mondays. Everything is connected to faith. Romans 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. So it's the word of God that literally feeds our faith. It causes our faith to come. It causes our faith to grow. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that Jesus is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. In other words, it begins with what Jesus did and it ends with what Jesus did. Everything about the life of faith is because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, the, the faith comes by hearing. So let me jump back in here. Second uh, Timothy chapter three. There's nothing like the written word of God to show us the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible, from beginning to end, it's pointing us to Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for one way or another. Now, by the way, when it says that every part of Scripture, it's God-breathed, it's God-inspired, what it means is this, that it's God speaking to us, and by the way, God does not change his mind. Now, what we have a, a lot of very well-recognized denominations, Christian denominations, that are literally saying today, well, that part of the Bible, that's not for us. We don't like that Romans 1 stuff, and we don't like this part, and we don't like that part. But every part of it is God-breathed and is useful for one way or another to show us the truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Remember, we're living in a culture that is not living God's way. So the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, not to be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into its mold, but be transformed. Go through literally through a metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind or by changing the way you think. And let me just remind you, the Bible was given to you to change the way you think. 
Right? That's why God gave you a Bible. So you wouldn't be conformed to this world, but you would be transformed. You'd go through a metamorphosis and change the way that you think that you'd know what the will of God is. So let me talk to you just a moment about confessing the word. Now, normally when Christians begin to talk about confession, the first thing people think about is confession of sin. Now, in the Bible, there's three confessions, three types of confession. One is the confession of sin. The second one is the confession of Jesus as Lord. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as your Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here's one of the things that's interesting is a lot of times people think to get saved, you've got to confess all your sins. Well, I'm glad I didn't have to confess them all because I'd done so much I forgot half of them. In fact, I'd, I'd forgot more than half of them. But to be saved, you don't need to confess your sins. You need to confess Jesus as your Lord. Now, once you get saved, and if you sin, the Bible says in 1 John, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, confession of sin is simply agreeing with God that the sin is wrong. That that sin, it's not God's way. We say, God, I'm sorry. That was the wrong thing to do. I see that it's wrong. I agree with you it's wrong. Then he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the type of confession I want to talk to you about today is the confession of who you are in Christ or the confession of the word of God. Now, when Jesus is tempted in Matthew 4, Jesus says to the devil, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth, everybody say mouth, mouth of God. So the Bible was first a spoken thing. It was first spoken. It proceeded out of the mouth of God. Then it was written, but it was written so that you and I would speak it. It wasn't just written so you could carry it around, you know, a black leather edition or nowadays on your tablet, but it was written so that you and I would know how to speak. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 59, God said, my word that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth nor out of the mouth of your descendants, nor out of the mouth of your descendants' descendants from this time forth and forevermore. What is supposed to be in your mouth? God's word is supposed to be in your mouth. I think it's interesting when Jesus faces his enemies in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that a two-edged sword comes out of his mouth and with it he strikes the enemy. Uh, Rick Renner talked about that. Uh, he's the Greek scholar, not me. And, and Rick said that that two-edged sword really represents two things. It says, first, one edge is when God speaks the word. But the other edge is when you speak the word to defeat your enemies. We need to be speaking that word. So we need to be confessing the word. Philemon, just small book in the New Testament, written by Paul, in the sixth verse says, And I pray that your partnership in the faith. Now, when it talks about our partnership in the faith, it's talking about two different things. 
First of all, the Christian life was never meant to be lived by yourself. It's supposed to be lived in community. But then there's the partnership of your faith because Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. I pray that your partnership in the faith may become effective, or the translations say effectual, as you fully acknowledge every blessing that is yours in the Messiah. So we've got to acknowledge or confess the blessings that we have in Christ. Another translation says that the sharing of your faith may be most effective by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So literally, we need to acknowledge, we need to confess who we are in Christ. And I believe that many Christians, their faith never rises to a high level because they never acknowledge who they are in Christ. So for just a moment here, I want us to just acknowledge a couple of things that we have in Christ. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to kind of say a few things and from a few verses here in the New Testament. We'll even go back to the Old Testament. But I want you to repeat this confession. I'm a new creature in Christ. All the old has passed away. I'm new in him. I'm the righteousness of God. In Christ, he became sin and took my sinfulness. God took his righteousness and gave it to me. I've been rescued out of the darkness and gloom of Satan's kingdom. And God has put me in the kingdom of the son of his love. I overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. He's under my feet. He forgives all my iniquities, heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from destruction. He crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies my mouth with good things and renews my youth like the eagles. He sent his word and he healed me and I am delivered from every destruction in Jesus' name. You know, you begin to confess every day who you are in Christ and it just energizes, the Bible says, it energizes, it causes your faith to become effectual. If you've got $100 in your wallet and you don't spend it, it doesn't do you any good. And you can have faith in your heart, but you've got to energize. You've got to cause that faith to become effectual. And the Bible says you do it by acknowledging who you are in Christ, what Jesus has done for you, that you're no longer under the gloom and doom of Satan's kingdom. One translation says he sprang you from the jailhouse of darkness. I like that. It says he sets you free in the kingdom of the son of his love. So everything Satan kingdom has, God's taken it, taken you out from under its domain. Now, and he tries to show up, you just need to kick him out, kick him out. Now, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but I wanted to say this again. Every increase in faith 
comes as a result of an increase in revelation. It's the only way faith grows. When revelation comes, then faith increases. So I think it's interesting the way that Paul prays for the church in the New Testament, very different than the way we pray for people. Notice Paul's prayer, Ephesians 1, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he mentions three things. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know the hope of his calling. In other words, that he's praying that you will know what God's will is for your life. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is it that Jesus purchased for you in his death, burial, and resurrection? And thirdly, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Other translations say working in us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand, far above principality, power, might, dominion, every name that's named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. So he prays, first of all, we'd know the will of God. Secondly, that we would know what Jesus purchased for us. And thirdly, that we would know what is the exceeding power that is available to the believer, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, we pray God help him. God deliver them. But what Paul prays is that they get a revelation. They get a revelation of the power that's working inside them. A revelation of what Jesus has done for them. Because when the revelation comes, that is when faith comes. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, notice it says that he has given to us. I was, I, I was really bad in English. And then I learned Spanish and I got worse. <laughs> so, so, but I do remember this, that hath given is past tense. Past tense. In other words, it's a done deal. It's really interesting how often we're asking God to do things that he's already done. God, do, God, do this. God, save him. Well, what's he going to do? Send Jesus to the cross again? How? No, that, that, that's not going to work. But we need to pray God send them laborers. We can pray that God touch their heart but the, and open their heart to the gospel and grant them repentance to escape the snare of the devil. But to save them? Well, God already did everything he's going to do about your salvation. It's all done. So it, he hath given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may become a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now notice it says, have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Now it's talking about things that you'll find in your Bible. In fact, I, I definitely have not counted them, but I've read multiple people say there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. And they have been given to you. 
But if you don't know them, you can't claim them. You can't grab hold of them. Remember, the kingdom doesn't fall on you. Jesus said, from the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Other translations say that the violent press in, press in. So, so what we've got to do is we've got to know, well, where are those promises? We've got to find one. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 4, let me just read this. This is Jesus. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes into the synagogue, the Bible says, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. He found the place where it's written. See, so often what people will do will say, I I'm, I'm asking God for this. And you say, well, what verse are you standing on? And they'll say, well, none in particular. And then you, can, you may just as well tell them that's exactly what you're going to receive. Nothing in particular. Because God does chapter and verse. He's given exceeding great and precious promises. And we've got to find it. So Jesus, he found the place where it's written. The spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what he said. He said, that verse is true about me. That's what he said. That verse is true about me. And what Jesus did is what every one of us need to do. We need to open the book, find the place where it's written, find that promise that covers our condition, our case, and we need to say that is true about me today. That's, that's how you apply those exceeding great and precious promises. Now, much of the war of faith is fought with your tongue. It's fought with your tongue. When Jesus is being tempted in the desert, Satan comes and Satan said, and then the Bible says, Jesus said, it is written. And then Satan said, and then Jesus said, it is written. And then Satan said, and then Jesus said, it is written. Again, remember, the Bible was written so you could speak it. So you could speak it. It first came out of God's mouth. It was written. But now you have it so you can speak it. I think it's interesting even when David went to fight against Goliath. Now, now let me remind you a couple things about Goliath. The Bible says that he's six cubics in a span. He has six pieces of armor and his spearhead weighs 600 shekels. So that's six, six, six. It reminds you of anybody. Now, just, just so you kind of get the picture of what's happening. Now, Goliath is someplace between nine and 12 foot tall. I don't care which one it is. He makes Shaq look like a pygmy. I mean, he makes Shaq, this is going to make Shaq look little, all right? And, and David, he's a typical man of, 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 of that age, probably around five foot tall, but he wasn't even full grown. He's probably 14 years old. 
And he goes down to fight and Goliath comes out and says, send me a man to fight. If I kill him, you will be our slaves. If he kills me, we will be your slaves. I defy the armies of Israel. And David hears. And David, different than everybody else, because the Bible said when everyone else heard, they were afraid. But when David heard, something different happened in him. David got a little bit on the mad side. Now, I want to remind you something about David, because this is going to help you identify yourself. The Bible talks about David, that David had a different spirit. He had a spirit of faith. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, it quotes David. And it says, since we have the same, literally the identical, spirit of faith, according to what's written, I believe, David wrote this, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we speak. When the spirit of faith is there, Something happens on the inside of you different than what happens to other people in the same situation. And something's going to rise up on the inside and it's going to be something that you're going to say or something you're going to do. So David said to the people by him, he said, what are they going to do for the guy who kills that giant? And they said, well, first of all, he said they're going to make that the king is going to make him rich. Secondly, he and his entire family will not need to pay any more income tax. It's getting even better. And then they said, and he gets to marry the king's daughter. And she's a fox. I think my kids would say she's a babe. And he said, I'm in. Well, they tell the king and they bring him to the king. And the king says, hey, you can't fight him. You're just a little runt kid. He's been a man of war since he was young. And David said, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And a lion and a bear came. I went after them, caught them by their throat, hit them, and killed them. Your servant has killed lions, z, 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 multiples, and bears, z, 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 z. And those lions and bears will be just like that Philistine. That Philistine's going to die. And the king said, go. So he goes out to see Goliath. And the Bible says when Goliath saw him, Goliath said, he saw he was young and a kid. And he says, you come here. He said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take your body and I'm going to feed it to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said. Now, by the way, when David said, Goliath was shocked. When you are 10 feet tall. Nobody has talked back to you since you were in the third grade. <laughs> but let me just say this. The spirit of faith is going to say something. The spirit of faith is going to confront the enemy. And David said, you come against me with the sword and a spear. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. And today I will kill you and take your head from you. And give your body and that of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field that all the world may know that there is a God in Israel. You know, he put that stone in and he ran to the battle line as he's yelling at Goliath. Hits Goliath in the head, falls over. The Bible says he cut his head off and Goliath did not say anything else. <laughs> so you never, you never let the enemy have the last word. You keep on speaking. 
You keep on speaking and you move at your enemy with your mouth working. You keep your faith moving. Keep it going. Isaiah 54, 7, no weapon formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. There is no overcoming victory without understanding what the blood of Jesus has purchased for you and the word of your testimony. You and I need to begin to speak. Now, listen, anybody can shout when the giant's laying down dead. That doesn't take any faith. The Bible talks in 2 Chronicles about Jehoshaphat. It says that three armies, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and uh, another army, Moabites, are coming against Israel. And when Jehoshaphat hears, the Bible says he's afraid. He calls the people together and they pray. And as they're praying, God spoke and said, listen, all you Judah inhabitants and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord, don't be afraid nor dismayed because of the multitude. The battle's not yours, but it's God's. Tomorrow, go down against them and they will surely come up by the ascent of Zib. And you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness. And literally what, what the king does is he gets the people together and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go attack the enemy and we're going to take the choir and they're going to put them in the front and they're going to sing. They're going to they're sing to the Lord. And when they do, the Bible says this is what happens. They're already, they're already believing and recognizing that God is giving them victory. So when they start to sing praise the Lord for his mercy, and by the way, the word there, mercy, is covenant love. His covenant love endures forever. When they recognize the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that that was their covenant, and that God in his love keeps covenant, God, the Bible says, he confused the enemy and literally the enemy smote themselves down to the last man and Israel just goes and collects the, the, the reward that the enemy had on them. He collected the, the bounty, the booty. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that word anymore. <laughs> Probably in trouble already. Now, when, uh, when, when, when they're dedicating the, the temple after it had been destroyed and they go back and they're, they're building the temple, it says, and they sang responsibly, praising, giving thanks to God for his good and his mercy, his covenant-keeping love endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They did not shout when the project was finished. They started to shout when they began, when they just had the foundation. And so often, people don't want to shout, people don't want to praise God until they have everything in their hand, everything that they can see. But faith begins to shout at the beginning. Faith shouts before the giant falls down, before the walls fall down. Now, 
As we close, I want to talk to you about one more aspect of faith. It says in Genesis 48, in verse 5. Now, the, the, the context is Joseph is bringing his two sons to his father. And his father's old. His father's walked with God. This is Jacob. He's walked with God all of his life. He's Abraham's grandson. And the two sons come in with their father. And this is what he says. He says, now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt, they're mine. Just like Reuben and Simeon, they will be mine. Now I want you to look at me. Here's grandpa as his two grandsons come in. Now these grandsons have been brought up in Egypt, in the world, so to speak. They, they, they are, their father is the prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt. So they've been brought up with the education that Egypt had. They've been brought up in the middle of the, the culture of Egypt. But when they walk into to Jacob's presence, grandpa's presence, gr grandpa says they're mine. He literally, he claims them for the kingdom of God. He claims them. He says, these boys are covered. They are part of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham, they're a part of it. They're going to be a part of God's blessing the world. They're going to be a part of all that God does through the nation of Israel. I claim them and they are mine, just like Reuben and Simeon are mine. You know, you need to use your faith to do some claiming in your family. In fact, if you're here and you have children or grandchildren, you've got relatives that are away from God, I want you to stand up right now. You've got children, you've got grandchildren, you've got siblings, you have relatives that are away from God. I don't care where they are. They might be in a crack house. They might be in prison. They might be messed up in their sexual identity. But we're going to claim them for God in the name of Jesus. Right now, everybody just lift your hands, lift your hands. And Father, we come and we right now, we claim these children, these grandchildren, we believe God, we call them back in Jesus' name. We call them into the kingdom in Jesus' name. We send forth laborers in the name of Jesus. And Father, we pray that the word of God that's been sown in their hearts, that they will not be able to escape. Father, we say that the Holy Spirit falls on them right now in the name of Jesus, makes them miserable away from God. And we call them back in the strong name of Jesus. And we say they will be saved, that they will serve God, that they will not fall away permanently, but they're coming home in Jesus' name. And we recognize it may be impossible with men, but we know it's possible with God. And we believe for every one of them to come back in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Would you be seated? Say every head bowed, every eye, every eye closed. You're here today and you're not right with God. You might just be away from the Lord. Maybe you've known nothing about him, never served him. But you're not here by accident today. You're here because God loves you and because he's drawing you to himself.
And you, you may think, well, I've, I've done so much, but there is no life so dark, no sin too shocking, no attitude so bad, no sex so perverted, no relationship so appalling, no pit so deep, no addiction so powerful that the blood of Jesus will not reach down where you are and forgive you and set you free. Forgive you and make you new. God specializes in impossibilities. And today, the Spirit of God is calling you home. Now, God has forgiveness that he wants to give to you, but you've got to receive it. But God wants something from you. He wants you to surrender your life. Surrender your life to Jesus. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus as your Lord, your King, surrender your life to him, you will be saved. So I'm going to ask you, if you need to get right with God today, when I count to three in just a moment, you'll lift your hand when I say three. And when you lift in your hand, you're saying this. You're saying, I'm coming to be forgiven, and I'm coming to surrender my life to Jesus today. One. As you lift that hand, you're saying, I know I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I'm coming to Jesus to be saved and to be forgiven. Two. Now get ready. As you lift that hand, you're saying, I'm surrendering all of my heart and all of my life to Jesus today. He's going to come into my heart. He's going to forgive me. Make me a new person on the inside, a part of your kingdom, on my way to heaven. Three, lift that hand up. Pray with me. I'm not right. I see that hand and that hand and that hand. Are there others? Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. In the balcony. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Others, thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Someone else, include me. Way in the back. Thank you. All right. Over here to my right. Thank you. God bless you. Would everyone please take one hand, put it over your heart. Lift your other hand towards heaven. Now let's pray together with those that lifted their hands. Say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he rose again. I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I hold nothing back. Thank you, you've heard my prayer that I'm forgiven, that you come into my heart and make me a new person on the inside, a part of your kingdom, on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.